Welcome to the 15 Past 15 podcast. It's a great pleasure today to have Professor Joan Judge from York University in Toronto as our guest. Joan, welcome. Thank you. Um, you wrote a book in 2008 called The Precious Raft of History, the Past, the West and the Woman Question in China. Uh, what was the woman question? The question was, what do we do in this pivotal moment of modern Chinese history when we know we have to transform um, many social conventions and um, cultural forms? What do we do about women? So the period that the book deals with is the late Qing dynasty, so the decades before 2,000 years of imperial rule ended. So this is a really important time. Um, from the mid-19th century, there'd been imperialist aggression in China, beginning with the Opium War. Um, and so China really had to rethink um, its political forms, social forms, cultural forms. And one of the big questions is, was, what do we do with our women? So history, I think, as we all know, is incredibly important in China, and they never move forward without looking backward. And so they looked to the past for models when women had been more involved in, in society or politics, and they started to look outside of China. So what I attempt to do in the book is look at the different kinds of model, models that they try to mobilize in order to um, sanction new roles for women and promote new roles for women. And this is particularly in the form of biographies, is that right? Yeah, so biography is a critical genre in China, going back to Sima Chen's um, um, Records of the Grand Historian, which is a text that was written, you know, 84 before the Common Era, has a section on biography. And parallel to that, there's a text called The Biographies of Exemplary Women, which was, you know, written just several decades later. And that same text of biographies of exemplary women was reprinted over and over and over up through the 20th century. And so these models of women had been used through time to model certain kinds of behavior. And this remained true at the turn of the 20th century. So women from that text were still um, held up as exemplars. Quite often their stories were changed, um, re-signified in order to you know, promote a different kind of meaning. But what was radically different at the turn of the 20th century is you also had Western women who entered the pantheon, if you will. Can you give some examples? Uh, Madame Roland, Joan of Arc, Florence Nightingale, Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, Margaret Fuller O'Soli, uh, George Eliot. So a real panoply. Educators, Mary Lyon. One of the things I try to do in the book is get away from the notion that there was one tradition and there was one modernity. There were very many different visions of the past, different visions of the West. And so um, quite often different reformers would appropriate different Western women, just as they would appropriate different Chinese women. And often the same woman would be appropriated, but differently interpreted. How would that happen, for example? For example, um, Joan of Arc, um, who posed a number of problems for the Chinese for two reasons. One, she was a Christian patriot, so you know, many of these reformers fashioned themselves as sec you know, secular, and they certainly were not Christian. And the second was her gender inversion, the fact that um, you know, she, she was ultimately executed because she was in men's clothing. So, more sort of conservative reformers um, had trouble with the Christian part and also had trouble with the gender inversion part. 
Um, and for the Christian part, they would sort of explain it away that she wasn't really Christian. She just pretended because she had to convince the superstitious masses that she, you know, they had to follow her. And more radical thinkers would sort of go along with that position on Joan of Arc, but they did, the, the more conservative ones had a lot of trouble with her um, gender inversion, with the fact that she remained in men's clothing because the tradition of Chinese women warriors, and the most famous is Hua Mulan, and maybe some people know her because Disney did a movie about her, but her famous story, she fought as a man for 12 years because her father was too sick to fight. And so she dons men's clothing um, you know, in order to do a filial act for her father. She fights for 12 years, um, they're victorious, and then she returns home and dons her woman's dress and picks up her weaving. That's how the story goes. Um, so that's how the Chinese could accept these stories of women warriors. So they act in periods of chaos and they attempt to you know, somehow um, help alleviate the chaos. But at the end, once the chaos has been alleviated, in this case, the war with the Huns was over, they go back to their normative roles. Joan of Arc did not do that. So for the more conservative thinkers who liked the fact that she was a patriot, in addition to explaining away her Christianity, they had to say, you know, this was ultimately her downfall. She was a great patriot. Um, her death was tragic, but it's really because she would not go back to women's dress. Whereas the more radical thinkers just celebrated her to the end and celebrated the fact that she did not um, revert to women's roles. And the more radical ones would also compare her to Hua Mulan directly on this, what I call the global heroism index, and say, you know, they would peg different women, you know, at different places. And yeah, people think Hua Mulan is great, but she went back to women's dress. Joan of Arc, A, she's great because she defied her father, because um, supposedly Joan's father didn't want her to go to war, whereas Hua Mulan acted on behalf of her father. And B, Hua Mulan went back to women's dress, and um, Joan of Arc refused. And how did that then relate to this big issue of how China was reforming and the future of women's status in society and so on? It really translates into different visions of politics. So um, for the more, you know, more conservative, but still the re relatively reformist, those who would use foreign models and sort of um, edit them in certain ways um, were quite often constitutional monarchists. So they did not feel that the dynasty should be completely abolished. They felt that um, you know, there just had to be um, you know, less of a role for the emperor and more of a role for you know, other, other forms of government. And so they would, in their um, retellings of these stories of women, continue to emphasize the need, for example, of women being very feminine. So their stories of, of um, Madame Roland, for example, one of the famous biographies of her um, painted her as the mother of modern politics. So, you know, here she was doing something radical and she obviously lost her life for it, but she was fit into the trope of motherhood. She was the mother of all the great heroes of, of um, Europe. She was the mother of the French Revolution, which was the mother of modern politics. So the constitutional monarchists would sort of veer the... Um, biographies in that direction. Whereas the more radical ones who wanted revolution, so they wanted to completely overturn the dynasty, completely overturn earlier ways of, of um, dealing you know, both socially and in the family, they would dissociate women 
from their familial roles. So for example, again, if we go back to Joan of Arc and this, you know, the fact that she was great because she defied her father. She didn't act on behalf of a man. So they wanted to completely disassociate China from the Confucian past, which meant disassociating women from the family. And you know, their real emphasis was on blood, the fact that you have to shed blood in order for there to be historical change. So they would celebrate Madame Roland's blood that flowed on the guillotine, whereas the more reformer, the ones who want a constitutional monarchy, would celebrate how feminine she looked the moment before she was killed. So uh, it sounds like, um, in many ways, that the, the writers who are, are studying these lives are less interested in what you call historical time, the actual lives, and more interested in sort of trying to fit uh, these uh, historical women into paradigmatic time, into genre of uh, good, well-behaved women or particular mm. models of women. Can you talk Absolutely. a little bit more about that sort of tension between yeah. historical time and paradigmatic time? Yeah, I think you have to go back to the notion of biography in China. So what these biographies do, and again, it goes from Suma Chen through the, the um, biographies of exemplary women, they don't they don't document a life. It's not about a life, the arc of a life, a building's Rome, and anything like that. It's one moment, a defining moment in a life that is some sort of um, moral moment that, that really defines this individual. And so that is what they try to do with the Western biographies they bring in as well. There's a teaching moment in each of the, these biographies, something that they want to emphasize, something that they pull out. And you know, clearly they're driven by their own political agendas. And you know, so what's really interesting is to look at, if you can, the original English biography, which is often hard to track, but the Japanese translation, which um, is always the source for the Chinese translation in the late Qing. Yeah, so that's very interesting. So one of the things that you're arguing then is that this sort of appropriation of pasts uh, is not a direct process between yeah. China and uh, Europe or yeah. North America, but it's yeah. coming via Japan. Yeah. And so it's multiply mediated, and then these, these um, stories are, are multiply transformed. So they're transformed when they go into Japanese, and then they're transformed again. So one example is there was one text in Japanese that became was known as the 12 World Heroines. And it was translated into Chinese with some transformations um, among the, sort of, the more sort of moderate reformers. I was talking about the constitutional reformers. And then more radical thinkers from that um, so text that was originally Japanese and then translated sort of reconfigured those again. And, and um, a particular author wrote a text on 10 World Heroines and radicalized them even more. So, you know, you can't say that there's one stable text. The text is constantly um, being transformed in, in order to respond to whatever the agenda of the author is. And what's the route by which these Japanese texts are coming into China? Generally, um, you know, there are a tremendous number of overseas students who are studying um, in Japan at the turn of the century. You mean Chinese overseas students? Chinese students who were studying in Japan and very attuned to what was being written there. And um, so they would either translate the texts when they were in Japan or quite often bring them back to China and then um, somebody would translate them. And they weren't necessarily texts either. The, I think the periodical press is absolutely critical in bringing a lot of these Japanese texts in. And I, I frankly think that 
um, you know, we tend to think that from about the time of the revolution, 1912, that there, was a, um, there weren't nearly as many translations of Japanese works as there had been in the past. But I think in periodicals there still were. So it's still one of the critical roots of um, new ideas getting into China. And of course, one of the ideas that is coming into China is this Japanese uh, slogan of good wives and wise mothers. Yes. Um, but you also talk about how that's an inherently unstable concept when it comes into China. Can you say w what's going on there? Um, sometimes it's good wives, wise mothers. Sometimes it's good mothers and wise wives. And I think it's difficult. Some people have tried to track, you know, what sort of the... Um, lineages of difference are, I think it's, it's quite arbitrary, but the main, you know, the notion is that, um, um, you know, from ancient times, the mother of Mencius, one of the great sages in Chinese history, um, you know, she's the, the quintessential wise mother. And so, you know, this, this new trope that comes from Japan um, is something that fits in very well with, with um, thinking in China, as does the notion of the filial good wife. So in Japan, this, this um, you know, four-character compound, this notion of good wife, wise mother, was a way of um, attenuating any kind of criticism of women's education. So famous educators like Shimoda Utako argued that what they were doing was, yes, they were educating women, but they were educating so they would be better wives and better mothers. And for conservative reformers in China, that was the only kind of education that they felt was acceptable for Chinese women. So, but they wanted to be sure that they were getting an education that was reinforcing these fundamental domestic roles rather than an education that was going to get them thinking about, you know, what they should do politically or how they should distance themselves from the family. A final question, if I may. It's quite obvious from listening to you talk that the past must be considered through the lens of gender. Uh, I suspect this is something that historians wouldn't have done uh, 50, 100 years ago. Could you say a little bit about how your work contributes to that and, and perhaps how you move in new directions with this idea of gender, the use of history, and then uh, history in East Asia? I think in many ways, time has always been gendered. Um, and again, we go back to fundamental biology in a lot of ways. So politics, um, political histories, um, that was really conceived of more as masculine time and linear time and time that went forward. Women, because of the cycles their bodies go through, because they bear children, were part of a very different um, temporality. Um, and so one of the things that became very critical in this period, a lot of the radical activist women, who I haven't talked a lot about, but who, you know, I think one of the things to emphasize is this paradigmatic time did have an impact in historical time. And certainly these foreign exemplars had an impact on radical women. And many of them felt that, you know, what they wanted to do was leave a mark in masculine time. And so one of the key women at this time, a revolutionary who was executed in 1907, the very famous Cho Jin, um, you know, she has these statements when she would put a dagger in the podium and, and you know, announce that, that, you know, it was time for women to be part of this, you know, forward flow of the national time. But what I find really troubling is at the same time, she was also um, a real spokesperson for women. She promoted women's education. 
And she was a poet, and that has all sort of been erased. And she's just become an icon of the revolution when she was really a very complex woman who lived in both feminine time and wanted to join masculine time. So she wanted her own blood to flow, and it's, it's, it's really fascinating that she, um, female criminals were almost always hung or you know, killed in other sort of more civil ways. They were never beheaded. Um, Chojin was beheaded, just like Madame Roland, who was her great, one of her great inspirations. So, you know, she's an example of a woman at this critical moment in history when masculine time and feminine time are sort of meeting and there's, you know, a, an attempt for women to go beyond this sort of sense that they're just part of this cycl cyclical internal domestic time. Joan Judge, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.